My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website at hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. Right. Well, let's dig into the word today uh, and let's see what truths uh, God has to show us today. So let's go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. As we have been walking through the book of 2 Corinthians now, uh, we've already gone through um, 1 Corinthians and now we are walking through 2 Corinthians and we are going to finish chapter 2 today. So uh, if you weren't here last week um, or the week before, there's only been two messages uh, that have been given so far and you can find them on YouTube or you can find them on a podcast, uh, whatever your favorite streaming podcast service is, you can find it there. Um, And so I would recommend going back and listening to those because in that first one, we gave background of 2 Corinthians. Like, why was it written? Who was it written to, right? And who was it written by? It was written by Paul. But we went and we looked at that. So I would suggest going back and really getting into the context of this book uh, so that we can understand it together so much better. Uh, We don't just stand up here and we don't just give a bunch of words and just look at scriptures and take them out of context. Like these scriptures belong in a context. They were written to a specific group of people that was not us in that moment in time, but God preserved it throughout time because it is relevant to us today. He knew we would read it and it would be his word to us. Uh, But it's important that we understand and we don't pull things out of context. So go back and listen to that message. And then uh, last week we uh, were walking through the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. So go and check that out. Uh, Today is going to be interesting because we are going to dive right in um, and uh, because there are several things that we're going to look at today. Uh, But we're going to dive in and we are going to, it's funny because as I was studying this and as I was going through this, they almost don't seem chapter two really doesn't seem to stay with one steady theme. And so I was telling Tamara whenever I was putting this whole thing together, I was like, it's more really like I'm giving three sermons, like three different sermons in a sermon. So, uh, but don't worry, they're not all 45 minutes long. Um, I have taken them down and they are going to be little sermonettes and there are going to be about three of them. They all, you can see a common thread kind of through them, but Paul really kind of jumps to some different places. And so uh, I want to to say that right off the bat um, as we look into this. So let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. That's where we're going to start. And I'll have um, some scriptures on the screen for you guys and everything. Uh, but why don't we go ahead and read the entirety of the word, and then we will break that down, okay? So here's what it says in verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment, the majority, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I forgive, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs." When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who is in Christ always leads us who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So my 
my goal today is to break down three different things that I see here in the scripture and for us to walk away with some application in those three things to kind of explain what it is that he's saying here. So let's start in verse five. It says this, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, remember our theme all throughout 2 Corinthians. What is it? Does anybody remember? It starts with an R and ends with esteration. Restoration, exactly, yeah. So that's kind of our theme throughout the whole book of Second Corinthians. Paul is all about restoration. Remember, that's that's what he sought with the with the church in Corinth. There was a there was a division between him and the church. There was a division between that church and God. There was a division in that church among themselves, and Paul just is just seeking restoration for them. He wants to be restored to them personally. He wants them to be restored to each other, and he also wants them to be restored to God. And I love this because he talks about restoration right here. Now, he's talking about a person, okay, like someone um, that has caused harm to the church, what church? Their church, the church in Corinth, right? He's like, they haven't hurt me, but what they have done is they've caused harm to the church, and there's been some speculation about who this person is, all right? But let's talk about what we know about this person before we kind of speculate uh, who this person might be. Um, so we know one thing. We know he hurt the church, Whoever this person is that Paul's talking about right here, he hurt the church. We know that the church was instructed by Paul from this scripture to deal with him, all right? And we know that they did because he says the majority of the church did punish him, all right? Now, who is this person? Who is this person? I, I have a speculation on who this person is as you look in this. And I want to take us all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Whenever we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this was, I'm pretty confident, Aaron and Jordan's first Sunday uh, with us. But it was 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we talked about a very difficult topic. We talked about a very, and that's why I remember it was you guys' first Sunday, because it's like, why would you talk about this with someone brand new? But it was the, it was the subject of the topic of church discipline. All right. And if you guys remember, there was a person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that was hurting the church. And Paul told them, he is hurting you. In fact, he, what he is doing, the sin that he is committing is so heinous that even the pagans look upon this person and go, what are you doing? We would never even do that. Right? He was in this incestuous relationship with his father's wife. And he was saying, you aren't, you aren't, you are celebrating what's going on here, right? And, and he says, what you need to do is you need to take this person and you, you need to purge them from you. Because what they are is they are like a little leaven that has been put in the bread. And what does leaven do in bread? It permeates the entire batch of dough. That's what leaven does. And so he tells them, you need to actually clean the leaven out in other words, you need to purge that person out from among you is what he told them to do to that person. We spent an entire message talking about church discipline, so we're not going to talk about it here. Um, but go back and listen to that message if you'd like to. Uh, but what he's telling them is he's talking about someone who Paul instructed to deal with, and we know that they did. So is it this person? Is it the same person? Like now has what Paul told them to do whenever he said actually hand them over to Satan is what he told them to do. Kick them out of the church. Like remove them from the fellowship. Hand them over to Satan because they are unrepentant. They do not want to turn from it in hopes that they will come back to Christ. And here we have a person who Paul is talking about and he says, he's not caused this pain to me, but he's caused it to you. And this punishment by the majority has been enough, is what he tells them, all right? This punishment has been enough. In other words, it worked. In other words, it served its purpose. What you guys did in the punishment served its purpose. And the whole purpose of that punishment was to restore that person to God 
and back into the church. That's what that whole thing was about. Church discipline was never meant to be vindictive. It's not something that we're just like, you know what? You messed up. It was pretty big. That's pretty embarrassing. So you're out of the club. I'm sorry. Like, we'll see you later. Like, that's not what church discipline was meant to be, right? It was always meant to be twofold, all right? For the good of the church. That's why we remove someone for the good of the church, and for the good of the brother or sister in Christ. That's why it happens. The good of the church, because it removes the leaven, that, that, that um, permeating sin from among them so that it doesn't infect anyone else, and for the good of the brother or sister in Christ. So the idea that the person would be removed from fellowship with believers and into the fire of the world was in hopes that they would see the error of their ways. And they would repent of their sin and seek to be restored to the fellowship and to God. And that's the best thing, by the way, that could happen for someone who is living in open rebellion to God. The best thing is not to surround them and be like, oh, you'll come back. Like that's, that actually is condoning what they're doing. And so he's saying, you must, you must for your good and for their good, because coddling them is not going to help. You've got to do this. And we see that it worked. And I love that. And, uh, and so I want us to understand that that's incredibly, incredibly loving. Now, was it the same person? Possibly. Possibly not. But possibly it was. I see a lot of evidence there that it very well could have been that person. But the point, no matter what, is the same. The overall goal and the overall purpose, he says, worked. And, uh, and look at what he instructs them to do next, though. I love this. This is so interesting. In verse 7, he says, So, all right, you've punished them as a majority, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, he says, to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm your love for him. So just like there are two purposes for removing someone, there are also two purposes that we see here for restoring someone to fellowship. Here, the first purpose is so that the repentant and broken person won't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He doesn't want them to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. There are two extremes whenever it comes to sin in our lives, okay? One is being so carefree about it that you are in open rebellion, and the other is being so hard on yourself about sin that you are overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, by this crushing sorrow, by this debilitating sorrow that you can't even move. One, if you think about it, is treating your salvation with contempt. When you're living in open rebellion, you're treating your salvation with contempt. And the other is treating salvation like it's not sufficient. God's salvation is sufficient to forgive. And he removes it as far as the east is from the west. And there's a moment where, yeah, you do need to feel sorry for your sin, but then you also need to lean on Jesus and thank God for his grace and mercy and move on and move on because some people can be so debilitated by the excessive sorrow that they are in. And he's like, listen, you guys need to make sure that you restore for that reason. Listen, Christ didn't die for us to go on sinning. And we all say, yeah, right. Yeah, Christ didn't die for us to go on sinning, but he also didn't die for us to wallow in self-pity, guilt, shame, and excessive sorrow. Because both of those things render you ineffective for the kingdom. And both are tactics of the enemy because you're more focused on yourself than you are on other people. You're, no, you're not being effective for the kingdom. You're not reaching people. You're too busy being obsessed with yourself and being self-centered about those things. Now, the enemy brings perpetual guilt and shame, and the Savior brings forgiveness and freedom. That's something we need to always remember. That if you're feeling extremely guilty and you're feeling extremely shameful, yes, the conviction of the Holy Spirit will do that. But if it continues and it's debilitating, then that is not from the Lord. That is from the enemy. And, and if it's something that is, uh, is, is from the Lord, then you are going to thank him for his grace and his mercy, and you're going to get up, and you're going to go, and you are going to live for him and live for the kingdom. Uh, 
We're going to talk about more tactics of the devil in about 60 seconds, so hang on. So one reason for restoration is for the good of the brother or sister, but just like in dismissal, the other reason is for the good of the church. We want to restore someone who is seeking forgiveness and repentance. We want to restore them, and that is actually a good for the church as well. Look at what he says in verse 9. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. All right? We can be outwitted by Satan by not restoring someone and forgiving someone. That word designs can also be translated schemes, and it means to take advantage of one's ignorance or thinking. The devil is scheming all the time, and he's wanting to take advantage of your ignorance. And he wants to take advantage of your thinking if he can. And Satan has schemes for you and I personally, and he also has schemes for the church. And it's all to render us ineffective for the gospel, however he can. It's always been his plan. It will always be his plan. He's going down, and he wants to take as many people as he can with him. And we just looked at One way he can do it personally, which was through a believer who is overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And in the church, one of his tactics is to harbor a culture of resentment and animosity in a church. He wants to harbor a culture in a church of resentment and animosity. Have you ever seen that characterization in a church? A church that just, just seems to have a, a character of resentment and just animosity, and it's just about them. You don't see forgiveness, really. You just see, like, grudges, and you, it's, just, it's just a very unhealthy thing, right? And you never, you never associate that character with a healthy, vibrant church that is winning people to Christ. It's usually a church that is dying, that nobody really wants to go to at all. And all you see is a church that is divided, whenever that's the culture of the church, because everyone is too busy being hurt rather than bringing healing. Everyone is so busy thinking about themselves. They're so busy thinking about the hurt that's been caused to them, and they're not thinking about the healing that they're to bring to other people. So unwillingness to dismiss someone who is living in an open rebellion is just as catastrophic to the church who is unwilling to forgive them. And we need to remember that, all right? We always need to be seeking restoration. The same thing that Paul was seeking, we need to be seeking restoration for people in our church. And let me make this personal as well. Unwillingness to forgive someone in your personal life is catastrophic for you personally. It hurts the church, absolutely, but an unwillingness to forgive someone personally is catastrophic in your life as well. Is there someone in your life who hurt you that you need to forgive? If your brain sees it better to hold a grudge, right? They deserve it. That's not necessarily the case, and the scripture actually wants he, it actually warns us that, that what's actually happening, happening is you are being outwitted by Satan's design. If that's what you think, if you think it's better to hold that grudge, you think it's better to not forgive them, then what the scripture is saying is you are being outwitted by the devil's schemes, by his designs. We need to make sure that we're on guard for that. And can I tell you something about grudges? I'm going to tell you first something practical and then something spiritual about grudges. Being wronged hurts. Can we all agree with that? Like, nobody goes around being like, I love getting wronged, right? Nobody does that. Being wronged hurts, absolutely. But listen, continuing to remember it, aka holding a grudge, multiplies the hurt. That's practical, all right? That's not in the Bible. That's just straight practical, all right? Psychology. But here's something spiritual that I want us to understand as well. Grudges are for those who insist that they are owed something. Forgiveness is is for those who remember Christ paid their debt that he did not owe. Let's always remember that. If anybody could hold a grudge, 
It should be Jesus. <laughs> it should be God, but he's not. Because how many times in our lives have we wronged him? He went to the cross because of us. Did he hold a grudge? No, he willingly went so that we could be forgiven. And we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. All right, now, Paul switches gears back to his thought process from verse one through five, which we looked at last week, and how he was so anguished. You guys remember this? He was like, I wrote this letter in anguish and with a troubled heart and with tears, right? And uh, he was talking about that severe letter that he had written right before 2 Corinthians. Well, he sent that severe letter with Titus to Corinth. So he wrote it, he was in Ephesus, and he wrote that severe letter and he said, Titus, I want you to take it. I've, I've cried over this. I have agonized over this. I want you to take this to Corinth. This is the last ditch effort basically to restore them back to the Lord. And I want you to take it. We don't know what it says because it's a lost letter, but it was, it, it brought tears to his eyes to do it. All right. And he sent that with Titus and he said, I want you to go to Corinth. Now, Paul was so anxiety ridden over how they would accept the letter and so worried if they would be restored to the Lord that he left Ephesus in search of Titus. So he's like, I know Titus is going to be somewhere around Troas. Like that's where he's supposed to be. So he's sitting in Ephesus and he's like, you know, there's a lot of persecution going on here. And uh, let's go right? Because he just has so much anxiety about it. So he leaves Ephesus and he goes to Troas in search of Titus, all right? Now I want us to look at verse 12 because he lands in Troas and listen to what he says. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now I look at this scripture and there's something very interesting to me. Like I always look at Paul and I'm sometimes guilty of putting characteristics of Jesus, like sinlessness, into Paul because he's such a man of God. Like I look at Paul and go, man, that's a guy to emulate. But, but we got to remember something. Paul is just like you and I. Paul is a human being and he is sinful. And I love when he reminds us of that and he confesses that and he's like, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I just continue to do. And we're like, oh good, okay, you are a normal person. Like you are like me, okay? Not saying we need to feel better about our sin and like how we don't serve the Lord well enough, but sometimes it's just nice to look at him and go, okay, all right, you messed up too, right? Guys, right here, I can't read this in any other way because I used to want to read this like Paul didn't mess up. But are you guys catching this? Like Paul messed up. Paul messed up here. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my, I had so much anxiety. My spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother. So what did he do? He said he left them. The door was opened to share the gospel. And Paul was so anxiety ridden that he left the door that God had opened for the gospel. He just left them. And we always console ourselves. If you think about this, I, I, was, I was thinking through this. Because we always console ourselves when something doesn't go the way we want, right? Or, or, or like there's something that we wanted to happen and that door seemingly closes. We have a saying to make us feel better, right? And that saying is, well, when the Lord closes a door, he opens a Chick-fil-A. That's right. I'm kidding. It's a window, but he does open Chick-fil-A's, okay? But we have that and we say that because we love to console ourselves with that. But here's what we never talk about. How often? Do we talk about the way that God opens doors and we slam them shut? We don't talk about that very often. There are sometimes he opens them up and we go, nope, I'm good, thanks, right? Sometimes we do that. That's exactly what Paul did here. And as I contemplated this, it kind of struck me as funny. Do you ever notice how often we long for God to open doors? Don't we pray that all the time? Lord, just open a door. God, please just open a door. Like we are constantly praying for the Lord to open doors. What would you have me do next? Show me. But if it isn't going to make us feel more at peace and relaxed, 
If it looks too difficult, or we were really wanting a different door opened, what do we do? We just shut it, right? Like, ah, different door, Lord, <laughs> right? Let, can we get a different door? We either want him to open doors or we don't. Do you guys not want him to open doors? I don't. I want God to open doors all the time. I constantly, why? Because I'm seeking the path that the Lord has for me. So I'm constantly saying, Lord, open doors. But I can't say, Lord, open doors. And then when he does, close them. I can't pick and choose the doors that I'm going to walk through. But Paul was so anxiety-ridden, and I think that we can identify with this. I think sometimes in our lives, we get so anxious about things. We get so anxiety-ridden about things that we want this door to open. What was the door he was looking for? He was looking for Titus. He was like, that's the door, God. That's the door I want to find. I want to know how they're doing in Corinth. That's the door. And then God did what? I'm going to, instead, I'm not going to show you, Titus. I'm going to open the door for you to share the gospel. And he says, but I couldn't do it because I was so overridden with anxiety. And I'd left. And I think about that. And I think about my own life. And I think how many opportunities have I missed because I chose to slam the door that he opened in waiting for him to open a different one that was never one he was going to open. And I think about these people. I mean, they're fine. God's God and he's going to do his thing. But I think about the people that, that he left behind. Like God wanted to give Paul the opportunity to share the gospel with them, the blessing of and the privilege of sharing the gospel with them. And he didn't. And they were going to be blessed by Paul and they weren't. The whole thing is just very tragic whenever you look into that. So no matter the door, all the doors that he opens, we have got to remember are for our good and for his glory. Every door he opens is for our good and his glory. No matter the door, walk through it. I want to challenge us with that. We will never know the harm we cause to ourselves or to others by not following where God leads us, or leaving prematurely. Because we can do that as well. God, I've walked through this door, but I need to leave now. I want to close it now. Make sure that we are not guilty of that anymore, <laughs> because we've been guilty of that. Let's try to minimize that. So that's sermon number two. All right, so let's look at sermon number three. I've got to break this because they're really, I mean, it really the, the kind of theme that kind of goes through this is kind of the schemes of the enemy, honestly, um, like with the church and then also with the anxiety and the leaving. And then here in this next part as well, it kind of has to do with schemes of the enemy as well. So maybe that's a common thread that he's thinking about here, but it's kind of interesting where he goes next because he, he's, he starts telling this story. He's like, man, I'm telling you guys, like, I needed to go to Troas. God opened the door for me and I left. And then he just goes, but thanks be to God. Like he goes into like this whole other thing. It was like he's in the middle of a story and then something happens. Obviously it was the Lord, like the Holy Spirit, but it's almost like, what, where did you go in your mind, Paul? Because this is, <laughs> this is so funny. Like if you go to chapter seven, he picks back up and he's like, so I was saying like in Troas, like I left them behind and then I ended up going to Macedonia. Well, I don't know if you realize we're in chapter two right now, okay? He doesn't pick the story back up until chapter seven. So right now with the rest of chapter two, three, four, five, six, and part of chapter seven, he just kind of goes off. And he kind of goes into kind of this praise to God for like different reasons, for like various reasons. And so what you and I are going to do, we're just going to follow him. <laughs> like we're just going to see where he goes. We're going to look at what he says. And then we'll pick back up in a few weeks whenever we get back into seven about what happens in Macedonia. And let me just say, feel free to read ahead. All right. Like it's okay to read your Bible. Like if you're like, what happened? Like, go, go ahead, read it. All right. So uh, it's all good. No spoilers. Okay. Um, but uh, go and check that out. Uh, so, so let's follow him for a second. In 14a, he says this. It's it just, it's, it's kind of random. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And all of us said, what? 
<laughs> like, what does that mean, right? Like, whenever you look at, like, if you're like me, okay, uh, you look at that and go, triumphal procession. Like, I don't get it. Like, what, what does that exactly mean? Now, here's where really studying the context of something and really looking into the history of things can enrich your Bible study, all right? And here's what I would suggest. If you don't have a study Bible that you actually read along with your scripture that has like commentary from a very trusted commentator, all right? And if you need some uh, ideas on what to get, I will help you with that. Uh, my top favorite one is the ESV study Bible, really good commentary in that. And so I would suggest that. Uh, there's another guy by the name of John MacArthur. Uh, there's some people who hate him, some people who love him. I think he's a great scholar. And I think that uh, I don't agree with necessarily everything that he says, but he's got some really good commentary on some stuff. And so I would recommend that. But I want to take us a little bit deeper into this. Thanks be to God who is in Christ always. Leads, who leads us in triumphal procession, all right? So let's, let's dig into this culture just for a minute. If you are the original audience, in other words, if you are the church at Corinth and you saw those words, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, they said, amen, amen. And we want to say amen because that sounds good, right? Like triumphing is good. Procession, that's like a parade. That's good. Like, so it's like, I want to be in a in a, in a triumphant parade, right? Well, that's exactly what this is. But let's look into this for a second because whenever they heard it, they were like, I get it, I get it. And so I want us to go, I get it. This is awesome. So um, back in the day, there was something that was widely known as a Roman triumph, all right? A Roman triumph. This was a parade, a spectacle, okay, that Rome would throw a general who has soundly defeated their enemies, all right, and conquered greatly an enemy in battle. In fact, it was someone who, who, who conquered them so well that they were able to come back, and the army of Rome was able to come back, and it, they just obliterated the enemy, and then what would happen is you would have this senate and these magistrates who would get together and they would convene because they didn't just give anyone a triumph, okay, a triumphant procession. It was only for specific ranked people. So if you were a general, then what would happen is the, the magistrate would, would convene um, and, and they would come together and the senate would come together and they'd say, okay, here's so-and-so, all right. And, uh, and Caesar, he's one of them that, was, that received one of these triumphant things and uh, processions. And so, um, and so they're like, okay, what happened? This, this happened, this happened, this happened. They obliterated, they came home. Yes, this general deserves a triumph. And so what it was meant to do is it was meant to bring glory and unity to Rome as a whole. In other words, they wanted it to be a big celebration about how awesome they were. And they were like, and then let's lift up this general. And this general would actually from then on get like a very special name that he would have to get called from then on out, right? Like this was a great honor uh, that would happen to this person. And, uh, and it let people of Rome feel like they were a part of things. And so, and let me, let me just kind of describe this procession, all right? So if you can imagine a parade, which we can, we live in New York City, we see parades all the time, right? So if you can imagine a parade, you know those people at the beginning that have like the sign and it's like the banner that like opens the parade? Well, those people who opened that procession um, were the Roman magistrates in the center and the senators. Like they, they put themselves at the front of everything. They're like, thank you very much. We're the ones the reason for this whole thing happening, you're welcome, right? So they put themselves right front and center. And, uh, and then you would have behind them trumpeters and musicians heralding the celebration that was taking place right now, all right? And after them, you would have those who were captured in battle and they would be in chains. Sometimes they would be clothed, sometimes they would not be clothed but it was meant to humiliate them and to show how powerful the Roman army is in overcoming those people. It was meant to make a mockery of them. And what's crazy is they knew that they were either being led to slavery or they were being led to death is what was happening to those people that were captured. Death as in like the Colosseum, where they would go and have gladiator games, or they would have animals hunt you for sport, and everyone in the, around was just looking on and cheering because you were the enemy. That's what was happening to these people. And after them, after the captors or captives, 
After them would be the spoils of war, all the treasures and the valuables that they had taken, along with paintings and floats depicting what had happened during the battle and how valiant the army was. And then came the king of the nation that was defeated, if he was still alive, along with his family, along with his extended family, and sometimes even the caretakers of the children were there. And they would always be dressed in black to show the defeat that they had experienced. Then would come the victorious army behind them. All the people who came home, everyone who went out there and fought so bravely and valiantly, they followed after and everybody would applaud. Way to go. And after them, their honored general. The guy, the whole reason it was happening, the general behind them. And everybody would applaud him as well. And he was usually pulled in, by, in a chariot, a really great chariot by four amazing horses. His face would be painted red in honor of the Roman god Jupiter, uh, who was known as the king of gods back then. And at the very end of the parade were white oxen. And they were there to be sacrificed to Jupiter after the whole thing would be over. So that's what a Roman triumph was all about. And another thing of importance to understanding this passage is knowing that during a triumph, the city would be filled with this great fragrance of incense. So there would be these censers that they would swing that had the incense in them. And they would be doing this throughout the whole city. And it was to give an aroma of triumph in the city. And there was also burnt offerings that were going on in the city as well to Jupiter. And they would smell these burnt offerings. And it was meant to be a great, victorious, gigantic party that brought unity to Rome. Now I want us to read that passage again with this knowledge. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. He always leads us. This is the imagery that Paul chooses to use in describing his praise to God. In other words, through Christ, he is our general. We are his army and there is nothing that can stop the triumphal procession that Jesus will make. Nothing. And we are going to follow him. Oh, you want to kill us? We're going to resurrect and we're going to follow him. There is nothing you can do about this. We always, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And then Paul takes that imagery of the fragrance, right? Uh, that permeated the streets in a triumph. And, uh, and I want you to see where he kind of he takes this next. He says in verse 14, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So we go from being the army following our victorious leader in this triumph to then being like the fragrance to being that fragrance that is being tossed around through the censers and through the offering, right? Through that burnt offering. And, and let me just remind, like I'm completely reminded of Romans chapter 12, verse one, whenever Paul writes these words, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living what? Sacrifice. We are that sacrifice. We are that burnt offering. And our sacrifice leaves an aroma in the world. The sacrifice that we make is supposed to leave an aroma to the world. But what is the incense that we are distributing? What is the smell that we are giving off? What do we smell of? Well, the scripture says right there, and through us spreads the fragrance of what? The knowledge of him everywhere. The knowledge of God everywhere we go. That's what we smell like. We are supposed to be a living sacrifice that is an aroma to God, that gives an aroma to everyone around us of the knowledge of God. So when people are around us, what do they smell? The knowledge of God. That is what we are supposed to smell like everywhere we go. 
And as we live lives that reflect Christ, as we speak about Christ, God has chosen to use us to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of himself. We're always doing that. And have you ever experienced a smell that brought back a good memory? You ever done that before? There's some times, you know, it's weird how fragrances have the ability to do that. You know, like for instance, uh, today, it's interesting. Whenever I walked into the stairwell of our apartment complex, it smelled like summer apartment. <laughs> and my mind immediately went back to like the first summer that we moved here and it was blazing hot. And what it smells, it just smells different in the summer than it does in the winter. It's weird. I don't understand it, but it does, right? And there are sometimes that the fragrances you know, they, they have an ability to kind of do that. Um, but what's funny is that some smells can bring certain people to a good place and the same smell can bring another person to a bad place. Now, maybe, um, you know, I mean, I'll just kind of throw that out there, this out there. Maybe uh, you used to date someone that had a specific perfume or a cologne, Right? If you dated me in high school, I smelled like Curve. <laughs> All right. Now you can only get it at Marshall's, but you know, it's cool. Uh, so like, uh, you know, that's what I smell like. But it's, it's kind of funny because, um, you know, for you, if that, was a, if that was a great memory, if that was a great relationship, maybe you got married to that person, right? And do you guys remember though what, how important fragrance was? And sometimes when you're just in love and you just want to spray something of theirs and keep it, Right? And you're just like, I just want to have it. And whenever you're not here, I just want to have something to remind me of you. And I want to smell it, right? Those are kind of things that we do. Because, we, because smell, what? It's, 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 it's a, it brings emotion. It really does. But what's crazy is that like that same smell, if you were in a toxic relationship, <laughs> you're like, nah, like, I, don't, I don't like it. Like that's not the smell for me, right? And it's weird it's weird that it has to do that. Like you go into straight PTSD, like on just a smell and to somebody else, it's like, I love it. Right. But, uh, but yeah, but, but in a triumph, the smells of the incense for Rome, think about this for a second. For Rome, the smells of those incense, what did it do? It brought to them great memories. And they were like, wow, this is good. This reminds me of victory. This reminds me of when we used to go with my families and we would all watch the parade and we would all hang out and we would all eat together. And it was just so fun because our whole city would just be in this big, huge party and they would smell those incense. They would smell that fragrance and they'd say, this is so good. But to the people who were in chains, what did that smell like to them? It was a smell of death. It was a smell of death to them. And in the same way, the fragrance that we put off as we live in holiness and as we live in obedience, it's going to smell good to some. And it's going to smell like death to others. Especially the ones that don't want to have anything to do with it. I want us to read verse 15. He says this, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So no matter what, we are the aroma of Christ among those saved, among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? You see, the other believers, to other believers and to those who see their need for a savior, we are an aroma of life whenever we live in obedience, whenever we live in holiness, whenever I'm living that way around you and you see the knowledge of God through me, to you, that is a wonderful fragrance. To the ones who are not perishing, it's a great thing. And we can be uplifted through it. And it's interesting how talking about Christ can uplift one and completely offend someone else. It doesn't matter what you say. Even the phrase, Jesus loves you. It has the ability to comfort. And in the same moment, it has the ability to completely repel someone. It's just a harsh reality that comes with the territory. But I heard something the other day uh, that I really liked. 
and I uh, thought it fit perfectly here. And here's the quote. If people don't like you because of Jesus, that's biblical. But if people don't like Jesus because of you, that's sinful. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. If you are a putrid smell to believers and to those who reject Christ, you're doing it wrong, right? But the reality is some are going to be disgusted by us. And I understand that's not a fun reality. Nobody's like, hey, I really love disgusting people. It's my thing. I love doing that. No, like, nobody wants to do that. But let me tell you what our job is not, okay? What we may be tempted to do, but we absolutely cannot do, our job is not to take the putrid smell of our holiness in our obedience that gives a fragrance that is life to life and a fragrance that is good to God. To those who reject Christ and try to spray potpourri over it. You know, you know what potpourri is? Potpourri is like that smell good stuff, right? I don't want to go like into like gross detail, but like it's what you hope somebody does after the restroom, right? You hope they spray that stuff, right? Like that's what it's going to smell like to certain people. Like your, your holiness, your obedience is going to smell disgusting. And you're going to look at that and you're going to go, oh, I'm so sorry. Please let me, let me, let me clean that up just a little bit, right? Sometimes we want to do that. We want to make it smell better. But let me, let me tell you this. The Bible I'm sorry, but it doesn't need your help. It doesn't. The Bible does not need your help. It does not need my help. It's sharper than any two-edged sword cutting people to the heart and leading them to Christ. It has done just fine for centuries, and it doesn't need you to apologize for it. It doesn't need you to make excuses for it, and it doesn't need you to make it more palatable. Let's be honest. The thought that we will smell like death to some, doesn't give us the happy feels. It just doesn't. And what we will be tempted to do, and unfortunately what so many people do, is try to water it down. They try to water it down so that people will like them. So that people won't hate their smell. So that people will like them, and they'll like God. But can I just remind us, like there's, like, God doesn't need your help. He is going to be offensive to some, and he's going to be life to others. Maybe we've been an example of both. We felt the example of both in our own lives. I don't know. But I want to, I want to, I want to listen to how Paul closes this out in 17. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. When he's talking about peddlers, he's actually talking about those people who took wine and watered it down and then went out into the streets and were yelling in the marketplace saying, get your wine. But what they were selling is actually a watered down product and not the pure product. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. In other words, we aren't the people who water down the word of God. He's like, we've been giving it to you straight. There's nothing that we have said to you that has been watered down. And in fact, this is probably directed at those super apostles that we were talking about those first two weeks who, who, who have been what Paul would think guilty of doing just that, watering down the gospel and trying to get the church at Corinth to follow them. You see what I love about Paul? He just said like it was. He gave them the truth that it was. He didn't try to water things down so that he could then claim the church of Corinth as, as some of his disciples. He told them like it was, and they didn't like what he said. But these other guys that came in, they were smooth talkers, and they watered things down, and the church at Corinth was like, wow, that's, that's a little more palatable. I'll go to that church, right? I'll follow those people. And unfortunately, we have churches like this across our entire country. We have churches like this across our entire world who they, they don't want to allow the word to offend people when the word needs to offend people so that they will come to God. Instead, they want to make it more palatable. And I would say to you that that is extremely dangerous. 
extremely dangerous. Do you know who else did something like this? I'll give you a direct quote. See if you know who said this. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, it's tempting, right? A little more palatable than what the Lord said, right? But, but if you check out many of Satan's tactics, he loves to water down the word of God and make it more palatable. So what Paul told the church was, we aren't guilty of watering anything down, but we have been sincere. And he says, and I say this knowing full well that God hears me say this. So the gospel, I want us to remember this, the gospel is perfect and sufficient to bring to Christ all who will come to him. In fact, watering it down will cause more damage in the end than good because people will have put their faith in something that isn't real. They will have put their faith in something that isn't true. So I'll close with this. Maybe there's someone in here, maybe there's someone who's going to listen to this later online or in the podcast or whatever, and you aren't a Christian, but you also aren't offended by Christ. You also aren't offended by the gospel. And I just want to say that it's highly possible that that is because God is calling you to give up control of your life and to trust in him. It's possible that you are coming to know Christ. And I would just ask you, wherever, you know, you are, are you, why are you putting that off? Like, why would anyone put that off? And you can pray right now and you can surrender your life to the Lord. And if you want to talk about it further, I would love to do that. Get in touch with me about that. But I do want to throw that out there. But for those who are listening that, that have given their lives to Christ, for those of you that have given your lives to Christ, maybe God's dealing with you in something else that was said today. And we talked about many. So I want to just recap what those things are in just these points. Maybe you're falling prey to the schemes of the devil, all right? Like some unrepentant sin that you're living in some sort of rebellion to God's word, whether open or closed, and he's asking you to give it up. Or maybe there's someone you need to let go of a grudge towards and bitterness towards, and you need to forgive. Maybe you're living in guilt and excessive sorrow over sin, and you need to take hold of the hope and forgiveness you have in Christ and allow it to help you move forward in being effective for the gospel. Maybe you need to overcome some fears and anxiety and walk through some open doors you know God has opened for you. Or maybe you are living in that open door but tempted to bail and shut the door because it's too difficult or you're worried about something else. Or maybe you just need to be encouraged. Maybe you just need to be reminded that we will march triumphantly in the end behind our incredible general, Jesus Christ, who has led us to victory over the enemy, sin, and death. Maybe you needed the reminder that you have the privilege of being a fragrant offering to God and a fragrance to others about the knowledge of God. Or maybe you've been guilty of trying to water down how you live for the gospel. Maybe you've been trying to water down kind of how you live in public. Or maybe you're watering down the things that you say about God because you want to smell better to others. I would challenge us in that. So whatever God is showing you today, I want us to take a moment of silence so that we can respond right now to God as he has spoken to you. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.